Well, I invite you to turn with me once again this morning to the book of 1 Peter. I should have introduced myself at the beginning to those of you who are visiting. My name is Nate Hitchcock. I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, the handsome young man who led you in scripture reading is Austin. He's our pastoral intern here. Uh, We're again glad that you're here this morning with us. We preach through books of the Bible here at Ascension, and we are uh, continuing our way through the book of 1 Peter, this first century letter written to um, the church of Asia Minor, uh, to a people that Peter addresses as elect exiles, elect exiles, those chosen for citizenship in another kingdom, and yet those who remain as we do here on this earth. This morning we find ourselves in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, uh, chapter 4, verse 7, and if you uh, don't have a copy of God's Word, you can follow along with that bulletin insert that's found in your bulletin. Now, the astute observers among us, and I know there are some of you, will remember and may have picked up on the fact that this is not where we left off last week. We did not leave off chapter 4, verse 7. We actually finished chapter 3, which puts us supposedly at chapter 4, verse 1. But the even more astute observers will remember that way back on January 11th, we lumped the first five verses of chapter four with verses 11 and 12 of chapter two. We did that because verses 11 and 12 of chapter two and verses one through five of chapter four are mirror images of one another. They really say the same thing uh, to the church. And so um, we're not going to go back and talk about verses one through five, uh, but I do want to read them again, even though we read them a couple months ago. I do want to read them just so we can continue in the flow of Peter's letter. Remember, this was a letter that was passed around to the various churches in Asia Minor. It would have been delivered and read probably in one sitting to the congregations there uh, before it moved on to the next place. And so uh, I want to continue with the flow of what Peter's been saying, even though we don't read the letter every week uh, together, we can at least pick up where we left off last week. And so I'm going to start with chapter uh, 4, verse 1 and read down through verse 11, even though we're just gonna be focusing on verses seven through 11. So you can follow along, those of you who have a copy of God's word. Um, And if you're able, I'd love for you to stand for God's word out of honor for his word. First Peter chapter four, verses one through 11. One through 11, Peter says and continues, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. 
but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, before we jump in here to verses 7 through 11, I want to tie up one loose end. What about verse 6? What about verse 6? You covered verses 1 through 5 in January. Now you're on to verse 7, but what about verse 6? As you saw, as we just read, as I just read to you, verse 6 flows from these first five verses where Peter speaks and warns about the coming of judgment. And this verse kind of falls similarly with where we were last week and kind of that the oddity of the way Peter says things when he talks about Jesus preaching um, in the days of Noah. Peter is not saying that Jesus preached to dead people. That's not what he's saying in verse 6. What Peter is saying is that those believers who are now dead, that those believers had the gospel preached to them while they were still alive, and as a result of them embracing the gospel, they were saved from the coming judgment, from the final judgment. And that's why he says, they therefore still live in the Spirit. They're still alive. Their spirits are alive. They're, they're with Christ as God lives in the Spirit. So it's an encouragement to the church that in the midst of the coming judgment, that those who have embraced the gospel, those who were preached to before and are now dead, are really alive, alive in spirit. And so that's what verse six is all about. And this idea of, of the final judgment and uh, the judgment specifically over the behaviors that are listed here, this is the background for the teaching of, of, of Peter that he goes to today. And so as we look at verses 7 to 11 today, I want to focus on uh, two primary exhortations once again. Two primary exhortations to the church for us to meditate on and think about for the next few minutes. And the first one is this. Live in light of eternity. There are lots of ways we could say this. Live in light of the end. Live your lives in light of Jesus' coming Live in light of eternity. 
Now, when you hear the phrase, the, the end is near, what, what, do you, what do you think about? It's a phrase that maybe in your mind conjures up what conjures up in my mind immediately, and that is some um, homeless man with frazzled hair wearing a, a sandwich board, right, that says the end is near, ranting on city streets. Along with that idea and that image that comes into your mind comes this, this idea of, of, of a doomsday, right? Armageddon, this paranoia, this, this fear, this anxiety, an attitude, that, uh, an attitude towards life that either causes us to, to flip out and to get real crazy or to check out and say, ah, whatever is coming. Even something like what we're experiencing now in our culture can elicit this type of thing. The end is near. That's not Peter's intent here. To create in us that kind of anxiety, that kind of fear to either get spun up or to check out. When Peter says the end of all things is at hand, he's saying he's wanting us Church of Jesus Christ, he's wanting us to use this reality, to remember this reality, to keep it before us that it might change our lives, right? That's why he says, therefore. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, brothers and sisters, do this, think this. Be like this. Now, the first question we might ask about this phrase, the end of all things at, is at hand, is, is how exactly can Peter say something like this? Right? He's writing to a first century church, and here we are some 2,000 years later in 2020. How can that phrase, the end of all things is at hand, how can it mean, I mean, how can we take it seriously? If it meant something for them, how can it mean something for us? We're separated by thousands of years. Is the end really at hand? Well, a couple things. First of all, God's timetable is not like our timetable. Peter will say in his second letter to the churches, in 2 Peter 3, he will say this, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of time. So Peter's addressing that very comment. How can you say the end is at hand? But then he continues, do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wanting anyone to perish, but that all should reach repentance. The day of the Lord will come. So that's the first part of the answer. But there's a second part, and it's just simply how Peter keeps time and how we as God's people ought to keep time. 
The end was at hand in the first century. The end is still at hand in the year 2020 because all the major events in redemptive history have already occurred except for one. Jesus' return. Everything else from creation and, and God choosing a people for himself and God sending his son and God allowing his son to be put to death and raising him from the dead and ascending him to death. All the events of redemptive history have come to pass except for one. Jesus return. And in Jesus' return, judgment and justice and a new creation are coming. And they're coming soon. And so for the Christian, this, this isn't scary. The end is at hand. The end of all things is nearing because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so Peter is wanting this reality of this last pivotal and crucial event in redemptive history, Jesus' return, to not just be some dormant theological truth that we know and that we adhere to, but one that bears on our lives, on our decisions, on our priorities. How should the fact that Jesus could return at any minute affect our lives? That's what Peter wants us to consider. Other New Testament writers keep this before the church. Hebrews 10, 25, don't neglect meeting together, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. James 5, 8 and 9, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. The judge is standing at the door. If you're like me, brothers and sisters, you will go days and days without thinking about the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment. Don't you? And sometimes the resulting behavior, at least in me, is one that my personality is already bent towards, and that is procrastination. There'll be another day. There'll be another time for that. So what does this look like? What does this look like, living in light of eternity, living in light of Jesus' return? Well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not reading the newspaper and rereading the newspaper in order to predict the day, to fix it on a time, to see the signs of the times. It's not what Peter wants. Peter wants us to live lives of intentionality. Now, he doesn't say everything in this one passage. Obviously, this book has been filled with good encouragement an exhortation for us as the church. But he does say something, and it begins with two words. Be self-controlled and be sober-minded. And those two verbs, they come together and they really communicate one idea. And that is that the fact of Jesus returning ought not to create in us hysteria, but ought to create in us focus. Being self-controlled means having a sound mind, a clear head. Being sober-minded means literally the opposite of what the others are doing. What, he, what we just read in the verses prior, what was just described in verse 3, getting drunk, 
Because when you're drunk, you're out of your head. You're not clear-minded. And Peter says, be self-controlled. Be clear-minded. In other words, in other words, church, avoid anything that inhibits your spiritual awareness. Avoid anything that inhibits your spiritual awareness. Just as physical intoxication causes us to behave out of control, so mental intoxication causes us to lose sight. To lose sight of what is real, of what is important, and what truly matters. And this is more crucial than ever. Because you know as well as I do, because you feel it as strongly as I do, that we live in an age of mindless distraction and overload of entertainment options and more leisure time than Peter's hearers in the first century ever had. And so to live with a clear head, sober-minded, it's hard, it takes work, it takes intentionality. But as we do this, as we clear away the things that will mentally intoxicate us, and we focus on the Lord, we focus on reality, we're then equipped to pray. We're equipped to pray, right? He says, for the sake of your prayers, do this. Prayer demands alertness. The times invite us to fervent intercession, not not merely leisurely petitions. And I would argue that Peter is arguing for more than mere petitions alone. Yes, our, our Our good father cares about that pesky hangnail. He cares. But he's he's after something bigger than just our comfort. Is he not? He's after his kingdom purposes. Yes, the election matters in our country. We ought to be praying for it. We need to be praying for those leaders. But his concern extends far beyond the borders of this little nation in this time and place. And so we pray with clear heads, with fervent hearts, your kingdom come, your will be done. Save the lost, build your church. And we do that with the clarity of knowing that ultimately, Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but the principalities and the powers of this present darkness. Now there's a reality that the world wants to intoxicate us to not think about. The fact that there is a spiritual realm, the fact that we live enchanted lives. So Peter says be sober-minded, be self-controlled, Let your prayers be earnest and kingdom-focused, flowing from lives that are serious about the times at hand. So the question I had to ask myself and I ask you is, is what changes in your lives do you need to make in order to clear your head?
that you might live like this, sober-minded, self-controlled, knowing that the end is at hand. That's the first encouragement and the first verse. That leads us to our second, and it encompasses the rest of these verses. We'll go through this a little quicker. It's simply this. Not only live in light of eternity, but love like you have been loved. Now, this is a direct a direct command to the church. Love like you have been loved. Because a life that has experienced the love of God in Jesus, a life that has experienced this kind of grace becomes above all, the apostle says, a life that loves like Jesus loved. And Peter here focuses on three ways that that love manifests itself in our lives and in our community with with that light at the end, soberness. Forgiveness, hospitality, and service. Here's how our love manifests. It's not the only way that our love manifests itself, but here are three ways that our love manifests itself or ought to manifest itself in our lives through forgiveness, through hospitality, and through service. Let's take a look at each one of these briefly. First of all, forgiveness. Peter says here that you are to love one another earnestly, right? It's, it's a deep Love. It's a word that has to do with, with, with stretching. It's family love. Remember when we talked a couple weeks back about loving one another like family? You, you love your family differently than you do other people, don't you? Because you have to put up with them in a different way that you ha- than you have to put up with other people. Your family is an optional love. Brotherly, sisterly love, he says. Deep, deep love. This kind of love can endure conflict, and that's why he brings up the issue of conflict. Deep love, earnest love, covers a multitude of sins. That's what he says there in verse four. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Perhaps Peter is leaning on Proverbs 10, verse 12 that says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. That does not mean that love overlooks offenses. Though we might say that minor offenses can be overlooked by love, right? There are certain things that we make into mountains that ought to stay molehills. Love can cover a record of wrongs, the scripture says. But Peter is not saying love one another in such a way where you just sweep all offenses under the carpet. No, he's saying love one another in such a way where you're ready to forgive, ready to forgive again, and again, and again, and again. And the only way we can love with that kind of depth is because we've been forgiven. First Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind, it does not envy, 
It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Only through the love of God can we love like this. Of course, that could be a whole sermon in and of itself. It's a whole nother book of the Bible, the book of 1 John, which we'll study at some point. Love one another deeply by forgiving. That's the first aspect of loving like we've been loved. And then Peter takes this a step further and he talks about not only forgiving love, but love that has an open door. We've talked about this word hospitality. Literally, it's a compound word, love for strangers. We've talked about hospitality multiple times. Hospitality in our day and age brings to mind food. It brings to mind Pioneer Woman, Martha Stewart, that kind of thing. But hospitality in the context in which Peter is writing in the first century had to do largely with housing travelers for the night. Or, or for multiple lights, beca- nights, because in the, in the first century, there wasn't a comfort inn on every corner, and the inns that did exist, for sure they weren't comfortable, and they were actually pretty sketchy. They weren't the kind of places that you wanted to be. And so Peter encourages the church, all these churches spread across this huge geographical area, that when Christians, specifically when apostles, come into their communities for the sake of the kingdom, open your homes to them. Jesus in Matthew 25 speaks of the final judgment. And what does he say to the righteous? He says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. And they say, when? When? We didn't, we, surely we would have known it was you. And he says, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. Now, we don't live in a culture where this overnight need or an opportunity to house people overnight or for multiple nights is prevalent. Though I will say that there are people in our midst who are practicing this, whose homes are vehicles for the kingdom and for his people. And I praise God for them. But what does this look like for, for most of us? It looks like open homes, open lives, Sunday lunch, Friday night barbecues, Saturday night dessert. But do we really need hospitality anymore, Nate? I mean, we're connected in so many other ways. Oh, we need hospitality more than we ever did because we're connected in so many other ways. Meals together are unique. Jesus sure used them. Meals together, they, they slow things down. They connect us. They bring us close. They, for, they force us to focus on one another. They give us an opportunity to serve one another. And in a fractured, disconnected, frantic, and mobile culture, we as the church have the opportunity in obedience to Scripture through the gift of hospitality to give people what they need. Connection, compassion, peace, and rest in the name of Jesus. 
See, this kind of love in the first century church had a huge impact in the empire. And I think it can do the same in our modern world. Think about how much time Jesus spent around tables. Meals were part of his mission, his way to show the world as he ate with sinners and tax collectors that a new kingdom of grace was arriving. There's no doubt that hospitality in varying degrees is difficult. It is. It's difficult for us. We live busy lives. We like our privacy. We work hard to protect it. We're fragmented. We've lost much of the connection that the early church had. We don't even live in the same towns, right? We live 20, 30 minutes apart from one another. Hospitality can be messy. It requires work, it requires money, it requires time. But to whom lavish grace has been given, lavish grace ought to be displayed. And so from God's word and from the words of the Apostle Peter, brothers and sisters, seek to show hospitality. Love one another in stretching ways. Slow down your busy lives. Slow down and have one another in your homes. Have visitors in your homes. Let's show the world how we've been loved. Well, one final evidence of love that's found here. Serve one another with gifts, right? As each has received a gift, verse 10, use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. We've talked about this quite a bit at APC. We'll continue to talk about it. We've had classes about it. The fact that we have, we all have gifts given by God's grace, and they're not for us. They're not for our achievement. They're not for our name, but we're called to be stewards, They're gifts that are given for the benefit of those who you're sitting with. Paul talks about them in 1 Corinthians 12 and again in Romans 12. We don't have the time here and now to go through all of them. All that we need to hear from the Apostle Peter is the encouragement, the reminder to not neglect what we've been given. whether it be teaching or serving, mercy or helps, encouragement or giving, pour yourself out for the body of Christ. And I know as I say that, that many of you are doing that and doing it well. But if you're not, if you're content to be on the fringes, don't. We need you. Serve one another with the gifts that God has given you. And finally, do so with God's strength. It's interesting that he hones in on this at the very end of our passage in verse 11 as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. I think he does that recognizing that there are two temptations that we face. The temptation of of shifting ownership and credit for everything that we do to us, to our own natural ability or genetic makeup or whatever it might be, or the temptation on the other side of the coin to say, I'm not, I can't do that. I'm not strong enough to do that. I, I wasn't made to do that. Right? That was, that was Jeremiah's thing, and it so easily 
personally, it's so easily Nate's thing. Jeremiah 1.6, Jeremiah says, Lord God, I don't know how to speak, for I am only a youth. And the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth, for to all whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you. And that passage that I return to often personally is a reminder that God doesn't call those who are fully equipped, but he equips those whom he calls. So Peter says, you've been given a gift, serve. No excuses. God will give you the strength to walk in what he's called you to walk in. Because it's him, ultimately, that wants to be glorified. So brothers and sisters, to this suffering church, and to you and I who sit here this morning, Peter encourages, just in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your exile, don't stop being the church. Live soberly, prayerfully, in light of the end, and love, and serve, and show the world the love that you've been given. All for the glory of his name, because he alone is worthy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word And Lord God, I don't know how this word specifically pricks the hearts of those who sit here this morning, but I do pray that it would do just that. That we would go from this place challenged, encouraged, comforted, even rebuked by your word and by the challenge to us to live in light of the gospel that we've been given, in light of the return of the Savior, which we pray would come soon. And so, Holy Spirit, take this word that it might not return to you void, but would accomplish all you intend for it to accomplish for the glory of your name, in Jesus' name, amen.